Jeff, I get the this really bad feeling in my gut that one of us forgot to set the alarm. Do you feel like you've been asleep for a year and a half? I feel like it's home alone and I've been asleep for a year and a half, and my mom and dad and all my brothers and sisters are not home. And I feel like I've woken up to something very different here in 2020. Yeah, no, that feels... First of all, thank you for the Home Alone reference, because now I understand what we're doing. <laughs> and You're second, no, I feel the same. Uh, would you like to order a cheese pizza? Yes, and I would like to intimidate the teenage <laughs> delivery man with fire. You know, Kevin McCallagher, he's messed up. I know we've ta- we've litigated this before. We have, and we, no, he's we agree. Up. Yeah, no, I mean, he. I don't know how he had a rough upbringing. And I'm not saying, like, you can't have a rough upbringing in, like, a very, very rich suburb of Chicago. But, like, we didn't see the rough upbringing, but, like, something happened to that child. I mean, he lives in an attic, right? No, no, the attic is where no, he that's gets Fuller. bad. Yeah, that's where Fuller lives. And, I mean, sending your kid to the attic when they're bad is also probably not the best parenting. But it's an attic with, like, a queen bed and, yeah, like, it's a, a bunch nice of toys. There are posters on the wall, if I remember my view. We're not here to talk about Home Alone again. No, no, no. Hard stop. Hard stop. Hard stop. We're not here to talk about Home Alone again. Man, I almost um, did for, it. I almost got there. For, for the uninitiated, um, this is Show Bros. My name is Matt. My co-pilot, Jeff, is the other voice you're hearing. Um, and this has been a lot of different things as a podcast. We've done film criticism. We've done watch-alongs. Um, and as we're rebooting here after, a, like Jeff mentions, a year and a half of inactivity, um, we're trying to get back to our roots. Just two buddies talking about some films or some TV shows they love and uh, leaning on our background in talking about those as a framework through which to discuss them. So, Jeff, cue us up. What are we talking about today? Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Uh, the movie, not the graphic novels. We are still in Screenville. Um, when did you first see this movie, Jeff? I saw it in theaters. I saw it at... For for those of you who are from Colorado, I saw it at the Esquire. When Ooh, it was in theaters. Fancy boy. Yeah. Well, you know, you know me. Uh, when did you, <laughs> when did you first see this movie? Admittedly, I only saw it like a year later. Um, I think okay. it came out on Blu-ray, and I was kicking myself for not having watched it in theaters because when I watched it, I was like, "Oh, this is my movie." In 2011, I was like, "I feel so connected to these characters and to this uh, particular phase of life." So yeah, yeah. 2011-ish is when I first saw it, and I think I've watched it at least once a year since then. Yeah, no, I think I think I've definitely watched this and other movies by this director at least once a year, but realistically more, um, just because they're they're movies that I do, you know, still connect to and connect to that time uh, in my life. And, and definitely, I think what's really interesting about this movie in particular, because I did identify it with it so strongly when I did see it as a teenager, you know, I think what's weird about it is how much it, it and other movies from that time have changed. And like, how has this one changed for you, Jeff? Like, how has your perspective or your impression of this as a Number two, uh, number two things as a work of film, and then also when it comes to identifying with the characters, like how does this land for you now? Yeah, now, so, ten years later, if you can believe it. Um, yeah, I, I think that. Thank you. What a reality check! Like I needed another one. I think. I think what has changed so drastically for me is how my feelings on those two subjects have split. When I saw it ten years ago, I really identified with the filmmaking style. And I really identified with the character, Scott Pilgrim, specifically. Um, And I think what has changed as I've grown up over the last decade, or tried to grow up in some cases, what's really changed is that I have 
outgrown some of that Scott Pilgrimism, and I've started to not feel as good about it. Whereas a lot of the filmmaking pieces, from a a writing standpoint, uh, I've also started to not feel good about. There are parts of the the technical film itself that I'm still drawn to, which is why I think I still watch it. There are pieces of filmmaking that I still really look on fondly. Storytelling mechanisms and and how it's shot and how it's edited and how it it really perfectly tries to encapsulate a comic book as film by making the film more comic bookish versus like, you know, Batman Begins or The Dark Knight, which is also, you know, <laughs> like over 10 years old. Like this is very much like this is still a comic book. And I like that. And I like unashamedly yeah. really like that. But I don't like a lot of the character choices or how the women are written. And I think that's what's changed for me is that those things have have separated and I have to like kind of separate them in my head, you know? Sure. And we're going to double back to talking about the the sort of character development and how we perceive these characters a little bit later. Yeah. Um, I want to spend a good five minutes here just talking about the filmmaking technique. So for those of you at home who haven't seen Scott Pilgrim, uh, we've been dancing around it, but it's directed by Edgar Wright, a hugely prolific British filmmaker who's made some real, I, I would call them maybe cult gems, Jeff. I don't know if you call them big hits. I maybe call them cult Hits. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I mean, some of them have been really financially successful, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're lower budget. Of course, which we're talking about um, Shaun of the Dead, mm-hmm. Hot Fuzz. Um, I always forget if it's At World's End or The World's End. Perhaps an indication that that wasn't my favorite Edgar, <laughs> Edgar Wright Perhaps. Um, Baby Driver. Perhaps, but... Is yeah, his... Baby Driver is a recent one that yep. was pretty massive, right? That one did get a return on investment, I think. It did. Um Unfortunately, this film did not. Um, we're looking at a budget of a reported budget of eighty-five million and a box office of forty-eight. Oof, it's a big loss. Um, and I think this was and still is Edgar Wright's biggest movie to date. And when Jeff's talking about the editing being comic book style, if you're gonna watch this for the first time or rewatch it. I want you to keep an eye out for how many of the frames of the film are actually literally dissected like comic book paints, where you get a shot of one character, a shot of another, another, where in most movies you wouldn't see that. You'd see the conversation sort of go shot, reverse shot in the way it's moving. And Edgar Wright's known for this really kinetic form of editing and this kinetic form of filmmaking where everything is just seamlessly flowing into itself. Um, and for me, that part of the film is aged marvelously. I think like everything else he does, he's a real student of the craft and that always shows in pretty much everything he does. Um, was there anything else filmmaking wise that stood out to you, Jeff, when you've rewatched this recently? So f- for context, we both just rewatched this movie recently. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly some of those stylistic pieces are are a big part of it. But for me, the other thing that really stands out is the self-reflexive humor it has towards other pieces of pop culture. So my favorite sequence of of filmmaking and and writing is the like Seinfeld-esque creation of <laughs> yes. Scott Pilgrim as Kramer slash George. Yes. Um yeah. there's a moment, it's right after Scott's first date with Ramona Flowers, um, where you know, they they literally pull up the Seinfeld soundtrack that they they had to pay the rights for. And it's like a sitcom moment of him in his house talking about his first date. And there are a lot of pieces of like sitcom and there's a laugh track. And and what I really enjoy about it for me personally is that feeling of uh the work itself knowing that it exists with other works. The the idea that it has to pull humor from 
a 90s sitcom that may not really be that familiar to the demographic for this movie. And it uses that to create this kind of moment of levity that doesn't really need to be there. It's not a, it's, you know, it's not like it follows a really heavy scene. It's a funny scene after a nice scene before another nice scene, but it does it anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't serve a purpose other than to be there. It doesn't serve a purpose other than to like poke at the fact that there's Seinfeld in this universe as well. And I don't know why I'm drawn to that. It just feels like the kind of flair that I would probably do if I made a movie, I think. Like, I think that's why well, I identify with it, that. you know? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, I think part of what Edgar Wright is doing here, because uh, he's drawing not just from contemporary TV pop culture like Seinfeld, which even in 2010 was not super contemporary. <laughs> um, he's definitely pulling on a lot of video game references, video game sound effects, video game touchstones. Um, so the reason I'm sort of going down this path, Jeff, is who do you think the intended audience for this was? That's a good question. I mean, I think... When we talk about film and when we talk about, you know, demographic, we have to think a little bit about how this movie was made and who they were marketing it to. And and anytime you have a movie that comes from source material, the first demographic are the people that love that source material. In this case, comic book fans. I think comic book fans are largely male in their demographic, or at least they were 10 years ago. At least that's what the studio thought. Uh, and I think, you know... This movie also has a tremendous cast uh, that were specifically not really very, very famous yet, but were known entities to a lot of, I'll call them 16 to 25-year-olds. I think this movie was really aimed at like early 20-somethings and, and kids in college. And, you know, I think those are the two demographics that I'm thinking about when I talk about who this movie's aimed at. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Am I right on there? Gosh, you know. Do you feel different? I, I think you're close. I think you're close. I do feel differently. Because um, I feel like this movie didn't really have a target audience in some ways. And if it did, it was very specifically young men between, like, the ages of, let's say, like you mentioned, 16 and 25. So we're aligned there. Um, but how big can that audience possibly be? <laughs> Especially video game nerds. And the thing is, I want to put a little bit of, you know additional context on this this isn't just a comic book movie it's like an independent sort of off the beaten path comic book movie um and at the time you know nowadays we perhaps take it for granted that superhero movies are so accessible and that comic and graphic novels are so much more visible and acceptable as a pastime um, but i don't remember it being that way in the early 2000s at least or the mid 2000s they were still definitely a fringe interest so i remember seeing this come across just being peripherally familiar with the comic book being like, who the hell are they trying to sell this to? Um, you mentioned the cast, though, and I do want to do a quick roll call of some of the big names on here. Um, Michael Sarah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Chris Evans, a.k.a. Captain America, Anna Kendrick, Brie Larson, Allison Pill, Aubrey Plaza, Jason Schwartzman, Mae Whitman. I mean, tons and tons of talent on this cast. And it's cool because Edgar Wright normally only works with, you know, not a limited, but a fairly... Uh, strict list of actors which he's moved away from sort of since the early days but um the reason i bring this up is the cast almost to me makes this feel like a training ground film for like universal's next like round of superstars <laughs> rather than a major commercial vessel like i'm not exactly sure how they expected this to pop off um 
Some other, a couple of things they did that I think are interesting before we get into some softer subject here is they actually made an accompanying video game for this film, which is maybe better than the film. Um, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the game, I believe is the title. Um, that has been locked up in contract disputes and different rights issues for years. It might be coming back soon. So I'm really looking forward to playing that game again. Um, and we can't end talking about the filmmaking until we talk about the soundtrack. Jeff, what do you think about the soundtrack? Um, penned by Beck, but has a ton of different indie bands in there. The soundtrack is what stood out to me a lot more on my last couple watches than than in previous watches. I think because it's becoming such an integral part of how the story gets told. And that, I mean, on its head, if you've seen the movie, that kind of seems silly because the movie really exists around this band competition and, and loosely trying to get signed to this record label. And, and all of these kind of major characters that you're discussing have something to do with music or are involved romantically with somebody in the music industry. But it's really incredible to me how they try to use music and musical genre to create tone in individual scenes specific to, specific to those ex-boyfriends, right? Like you have, um, you have seven exes, but there are, I guess three X's in particular that get like their own completely different melodic genre. Um, you have Patel, uh, Patel's the last name of the character, I believe, correct? Yeah, Matthew Patel. Matthew Patel, who has this Bollywood flair to the music and dances with a Bollywood style at one point and sings. And then you have the twins who have this crazy electronic Euro-Asian feel and vibe both to their presence on stage, their logo, the graphics that are used, and and the music that they play. And one of the terms that I'm going to use is like a really filmic and, and film nerd heavy term, but it's diegetic versus non-diegetic sound. And that's basically, you know, for those of you that don't know, the difference between like the sound coming organically from something you can see on scene and like background music. So more often than not, most sound is non-diegetic, right? It's just music that's playing in the background. But so much of this film is music being played that you see. It's the band playing these songs. And I think what's really crazy is just how well done that's, that kind of matching can be in, in driving the story forward. It's very much, a, you know, like it's a musical by genre in a lot of ways, in that all of these characters get their own sound at times and get to push their narrative and their character development forward through music. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Reed, as this is a, at least closest to the musical's genre, like an action musical, mm-hmm. which it doesn't stand alone. We can perhaps get back to that topic. There are more action musicals than this one. It doesn't even stand um, alone in yeah. Edgar Wright's you know, <laughs> list of films. Like This is very much yeah, something he does. Um, Edgar Wright is known for taking genres and kind of mashing them up and, and splitting them and, and putting two together that wouldn't necessarily go. But he does make at least two musical action movies. For the yes. <laughs> they, the other one would be Baby Driver, right? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it spot on. I, I think a lot of times we literally get to see the music manifested visually where the filmmakers have, have animated certain sounds and certain notes and... When the feeling, you know, it's that thing we heard a million times in college, Jeff, when the feeling gets too much, there's music in this film. Or when the feeling gets too much, there's a fight. Like, those are the two possible, (laughs) um, 
you know, paths the film can take. So for me, I think the soundtrack is, is probably still the strongest part of the movie. I mean, like I mentioned, Beck was involved with a lot of the, the writing. Yep. Um, kind of cool. They taught the band in the film how to actually play the instruments, and they sounded pretty good. And then you have features by, like, Blood Red Shoes mm-hmm. and Metric. And at the time, those were top bands in my, I guess it would have been, what, an iPod Classic or something? Wow. <laughs> iPod classics uh-huh. don't feel 10 years old, but, but, but here they, we are. But they very but much are. <laughs> if nothing else, if you haven't seen this flick and you're a fan of, of indie rock or anything coming out of that Toronto scene in the thousands, definitely give the soundtrack a try here. Um, it might motivate you to see the film, but but we've been tiptoeing around something, Jeffrey, and I want to get back to it, yeah. which is that more how this film is either aged poorly Mm-hmm. Or how us growing up has changed our perceptions of it. Um, I don't know that I would call this a coming of age tale, and that Scott has already come of age in some ways. I mean, he's living on his own. Right. Admittedly, that's in a house across it's in the a street. basement apartment <laughs> across the street from where he grew up. So mm-hmm. he's kind of in a state of arrested development. He doesn't have a job, in so far as we know. Um, but he is independent in that he has this band that makes him a little bit of money and kind of do his own thing. With the band. Right. Um, yeah, just, I want to just drill in more, Jeff. Tell me more about how this film has aged poorly for you. Yeah, I mean, I would I would also say this is not a coming-of-age tale in that I'm not sure that there is enough coming-of-age or emotional growth that happens through the film, for me personally. I mean, I I would have said different 10 years ago, and I think that's what has maybe not aged well, is the idea that for... 87 minutes of a 90-ish minute movie, somebody can kind of not treat the people in his life very well. Only to, with like four or five minutes left, come to the understanding that A, he hasn't treated people very well, and B, it's because he doesn't treat himself very well. To me, just doesn't have the payoff that I think it might have when I was 19, 18, 20. Sure. uh, 27. (laughs) Hell. Um, you know, I think I think really what it what it comes down to is that what I'm looking for is more consequences when it comes to coming of age. I think one of the things that growing up for me has taught me is that there are consequences when you don't teach the people treat the people in your life very well, and they're not going to be solved in the last three minutes of a film. And I, you know, I don't necessarily fault film for trying to teach me that because ultimately I'm not looking for film to be like four hours of somebody hashing it out because they did their friend wrong <laughs> or their girlfriend wrong. Yeah, That's also not entertaining. But I, I think that that's kind of what hasn't aged well for me is that in the past, I think I let Scott off the hook on a lot of his behavior because it was reminiscent of things that I had done or, or ways that people around me were acting. And so it felt like the stakes were lower. And now it feels very much like the stakes aren't as low in how he's treating the people in his life. Uh, And I think that's maybe where I've outgrown this film a little bit, and it hasn't aged alongside me very well. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does that track with you? It it makes total sense. I think for me, where I'm I'm stuck, and I don't think we're going to be able to figure this out in the time of show bros, is I think, you know, we're both now a decade older mm-hmm. than we were when this film came out. So we've done, I mean, clearly we've had personal growth, but we're not perfect. Like, we haven't fixed all the problems. And I imagine Scott, 10 years later, also wouldn't have all of his problems fixed. Yeah. I wonder how much of our impressions of this film have to do with the shifting landscape around what is acceptable in storytelling and what's not. Um, so, for example, in the wake of the Me Too 
movement, I'm like a lot of different people. I hadn't really thought about those issues too much, not even in school. I, I'm ashamed to admit, but it's true, uh, of how women are portrayed on film and how you know females and female identifying people are written a lot of the time. I just I, I didn't think much about it because it wasn't something that was very visible in front of me. That's on me. Should have been doing more paying attention at that time. Um, but I'm also wondering, like, is it just my is it the increased visibility of the, that is, those issues that changed my opinion, or is it my growth as an individual? And it's hard for me to say. I mean, like you mentioned, I definitely in my early 20s, like everybody, made some huge mistakes. Sure. And, you know, figuratively stuck my foot in my mouth a lot and said some dumb things. And I think it resonates true with me what you said about the payoff at the end of the film where Scott effectively gets to be with the, the love interest he's been chasing for the majority of the film, um, it felt pretty gratifying then, and that they could kind of have a fresh start and a fresh relationship. Right. Because I think when you're, you know, in your early 20s, you know, a successful relationship is wildly important. Right. It's 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 almost the objective, more so than a healthy relationship, is, is one that just exists, right? So it's hard for me to just gauge, like, have I outgrown aspects of this and... Ultimately, where I'm landing is, number one, saying it's okay that I don't know. Yeah. And number two, that it's it's A-okay to be able to look at your past self and acknowledge your mistakes, as I would hope if Scott was a real person, he would do. And, and to say, okay, I've learned from that. I have changed from that. I can use that as lessons moving forward. Um, but you're right. At the end, in the end, Scott pretty much gets everything he wants. And his band loses a record deal. And, like, he hurts all sorts of people and he gets what he wants. Mm -hmm. And there's no... There's no consequences there. So, you know, would I be interested in seeing a Scott Pilgrim 2 10 years later and like hearing what's happened or everything? Yeah, I'd be interested in seeing that. But at the same time, would that defeat the point? I don't know. So that was a very long way of saying I agree with you. I think that I watch this film now and I cringe at parts I didn't used to cringe at. I also laugh at parts I didn't used to laugh at is the thing. Totally. Um, I think that... Give me an example of that. Like, what is something you laugh at now that maybe you didn't five or ten years ago? Like, what's grown well? Sure. I think I always thought the character of Kim, played by the outstanding Allison Pill, fantastic Unbelievable actress. She was always funny to me. She was always funny, but never, like, split my sides funny. Um, recently, every time she talks, I'm just like, yep, this is the only one of these 20-year-olds who knows what the hell is going on. Yeah. And I just laugh so much harder, because I'm like, this is absolutely right. Um, I didn't realize this is one of Aubrey Plaza's first credits as well. I didn't I didn't realize that was the case. Um, she does amazing in this film, considering that she's up against some, you know, real industry heavy hitters, and she's just chewing up scenery like nobody's business. Yeah. Um, and I would say something that's changed a little bit is I still think Kieran Cullen's performance as Wallace Wells is great, mm -hmm. but some of his quippiness and some of his one-liners aren't quite as punchy to me anymore. Um, nor is Chris Evans's character of yeah. Lucas Lee. I used to be like, this guy is just a bumbling, you know, asshole. You know, the people like this don't exist. No, it turns out a lot of people like that exist and are very successful. So I think there's there's aspects of truth in that character of Lucas Lee that I'm just like, ugh, I don't need to re revisit this. I don't need to know in a universe where Logan Paul could skateboard and act. I don't need to have that information in front of me. So, but what about you, man? How's the humor changed over time? How is how is your? Do you have any new favorite scenes or new scenes you really enjoyed this time around? I think. You know, the scenes for me that have become funnier are are definitely the scenes with Kim. I think Kim as a as a character, I am in a hundred percent agreement with you. I think they have become far more poignant and that that makes them funnier 
for me. Um, you know, the scenes that I've really started to enjoy are are kind of the interstitials, the the throwaway lines that that don't advance the plot for me become funnier. I still laugh out loud every time Scott takes Scott goes, yeah, I'll take you to my childhood home. And they just pan around. That will never <laughs> not be funny to me because that is like the quintessential, like trying to impress somebody romantically in your in your teenage years is like yes i have i have this thing to show you of my past and it's like i am i am still growing up i am still kind of a child and and so i'm not really disconnected from that it's it's like the it's like the freshman in college that comes back to high school to visit on like thanksgiving break and it's like yeah you're (laughs) you moved 90 you moved you moved out of state 90 days ago like yeah we just saw you (laughs) You know, and it's always you, you just did a be semester funny. abroad. It's not right? like you've changed your entire yeah. ethos in yeah. this time. You didn't. You didn't move away and, and change your name. Like I, I saw you less than a season of television ago, um, and and so for me that will always be funny. But I agree, there are characters that have become almost too real for me, and one of them that I think about every time I watch it is is uh, Gideon. Interesting. Tell me more about that. I think Gideon is meant to be this caricature of of power and this caricature of the music industry and of controlling women uh, in, a, in a way that has become really slimy to me, really not. Uh, there's, there's very little I find viewable about that character. And I don't, I mean, that character definitely brings humor in the script he's meant to. Uh, and that humor falls flat for me because there are just like, just like the Lucas Lee character, there are too many people that I know that want that or have that, that hold that power. And so for me, that's, it's, it's too real. It's, it's not funny. And I think those are, those are the kinds of things that haven't aged well, similar to some of the humor around Wallace's character. There's a lot of humor around homosexuality that I, that just hasn't aged well. Um, and I think, you know, you bring up that great point about the Me Too movement and whether there's just more of a focus on it now than there was or if we've grown. And the same could be said about this humor towards Wallace's sexuality. You know, those jokes definitely landed 10 years ago. They did. They were funny to a lot of people. I definitely laughed at them, and I don't now. And I I don't know if that's me growing or society growing, and I don't know that we'll ever have that answer because it's, it's hard to vacuum some of that off. Right. It's hard to say. Well, I guess the, the big thing, the big thing is, Jeff, like, does it matter either way? If, if we're headed more towards a, a more moral or ethical form of storytelling mm-hmm. or at least consuming things, like, does it matter where exactly we get it from? I'm, sure. I'm not sure it does. I don't. I'm um, not either. And, you know, and neither of us are, are you know, we were, neither of us were born women and or no. female and neither of us are homosexual. And so far as I know, that thing would be a big surprise to both of us. Mm-hmm. Um we can't really weigh in on this, right? right. Like we're not the, the people who are affected by it. So I think no matter what we're doing, we're sort of armchair quarterbacking this thing Definitely. on this part. But yeah. for the listeners, I think it, it is worth, like what Jeff and I are doing right now, it's worth kind of thinking about some of this stuff. And it's also okay to not be certain where you land on it, so long as you're thinking about it and trying to do the right thing. Um, when it comes to the stories you watch and the stories you tell. Um, I wanted to double back a little bit to the character of Gideon. I think um, recently rewatching it, 
what immediately came to mind for me, this is more of a visibility piece again, is the story of what the producer Dr. Luke did to Kesha's career and some of the things mm-hmm. about Scooter Braun and the control he has over Taylor Swift's discography. Like, I knew those things were happening in music at the time. Sure. You know, because they've been happening probably since music has been a huge industry. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even since, like, Mozart. Um, but I think being able to look at those people who are affected by this, such as Ketcha, such as Taylor Swift, who are closer to my age, has made it more relatable. So yeah, I, I think there were some parts I thought Gideon was funny. Uh, I also think 22-year-old Matt probably wanted to be as cool as Gideon someday, which is its own problematic thing sure. I've been working on unpacking. Um, but we can say, beautifully played by Jason Schwartzman. Absolutely. Completely contemptible. Yeah, like, 100%. <laughs> very, a person you don't want to like. Uh-huh. And uh, for those of you at home who have seen Scott Pilgrim, maybe you don't want to revisit it. There was a fantastic table read of Scott Pilgrim with the majority of the cast recently, you know, now 10 years later. And with Edgar Wright reading too, and it's just, it's fantastic. I recommend you check it out if you enjoyed the film. Definitely. Um, they don't really get into the, the weeds of talking about what makes it work and what makes it not work. But it is my hope that because so many of those actors showed up that at least the working environment of the film was positive, was conducive. And that's what made them so willing to, to dive back in. Um, I think the only people who weren't there were major people were Brie Larson, mm-hmm. who probably has other things going on. And uh, Kieran Culkin, who I have no idea where he's been. Kieran, has he been in, Kieran, in anything recently? He sure has. Kieran Culkin is on Succession. Succession is the one with the sad song. Succession is one of the ones with the sad song, yes. Uh, Succession <laughs> that, is... That's the only information I have about Succession, sorry. That's it. <laughs> that's pretty much all you need. Succession is an HBO show uh, about uh, a family with a lot of money and a lot of power that own a media mogul business. Uh, and he's one of the... Uh, one of the children of an ailing father fighting for basically control. And he is magnificent in it. If you liked Kieran Culkin in Scott Pilgrim, or if you liked Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone to revisit our opening and bring it all the way back around, you got to enjoy Succession. We're not going back here. We're not going back here. No Home Alone. Also, Kieran Culkin's 38, and he looks fantastic. we got to get some of whatever he's getting for that. Yeah. Any last thoughts on Scott Pilgrim, Jeff? I feel like we, we've covered those bases I wanted to cover with it. Yeah, I think I think we've done a good job revisiting it. I would just echo your point. I think it's worth revisiting things that were really important to you in those kind of formidable years of your late teens and your early 20s from a media perspective and, and asking some of these questions about what you liked about them and what you still like about them or, or what you no longer like about them. And I think that goes for media of all kinds whether it's music or TV or movies, because I think it it gives you that opportunity to really look at your own personal growth and also look at the societal growth around you and 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 have those conversations with yourself about, about where you were and, and what that growth can look like. And I think that self-retrospective moment is a good thing, and it's something that I've grown to enjoy uh, and, and not not shy away from as much anymore. Me too. And I'm sure in another 10 years, we'll be looking back on things that we really loved at 30 and finding all sorts of things wrong with them and all sorts of things wrong with us. That's, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, I think this it's is like you, forever. You never, reach a perfect, you never reach a perfect state of watching different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to talk about The Last Jedi right now, along with that thought. Oh, but I was going to make a joke about 10 years from now, we should do a show on This is 40 and how it's not what it's like to be 40. <laughs> that's where i was going cat at this pace catch us in 10 years for the next episode of show bros there you go. Uh, 
Set those expectations account, low. You can find us on Twitter. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at, at Showbros Podcast. Um, it would really mean a ton to us if you went ahead and followed and tweeted us or, you know, just drop us an email, showbrospodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want more Showbros, you don't want a 10-year break, that's the way you get it. Either a review, send us an email, or send us a tweet. And Jeff, bring us home. Playing us out is Drake Stafford with his song Cassettes. As always, some things don't change. We will see you soon, I hope. We'll